there's something, and I get this prejudice a lot, there's just something about them being clothes. You know, they're just clothes. And it's like, well, it's not just lighting, it's cinematography, (laughs) you know. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Hollywood under the influence of women. First, the woman behind the throne of Golden Age MGM, Ida Koverman. Then, how women in fashion influenced a classic genre, film noir. But first, remember to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that knows that sometimes murder can smell like honeysuckle. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help new friends discover us. We may need all our little friends tonight. So have you seen Mank? Yes, I have. Mm -hmm. So is there someone playing Ida Coverman in the background there somewhere? I didn't see anyone that uh, referenced her at all. Okay. Did you? No, I I was just wondering because, I mean, yeah. you do see some secretaries at some point, and I wondered if there was one that in some way was, you know, giving away that mm-hmm. she was Ida Coverman. No, I, way- I didn't at all. I, I mean, the one secretary <clears throat> ty- uh, typing or taking t- – no, I, I really looked for, like, even a composite character or some reference, and it, it wasn't there. <laughs> All right, well, now we're going to blow the lid off Mank by revealing the true story of MGM, which is that Ida Coverman ran it all. <laughs> Ida Coverman turns up just off the spotlight in film history books as Louis B. Mayer's executive assistant and sometimes as a behind-the-scenes power broker at the legendary studio, second only to Mayer, and maybe not second. But what's the truth of her role, and how did she get it? Jacqueline Braitman's book, She Damn Near Ran the Studio, from University Press of Mississippi, is the first book to dig into Coverman's life as a woman who worked power behind the scenes, from California politics to the movies and back again to politics. And it all began with a scandal she had to escape as a young woman to become a matronly power broker in California. Tell me basically who who's Ida Coverman and why are we making these extreme claims of her influence over a movie studio? Well, uh, the claim uh, was the challenge. Uh, this particular quote, the title, is from uh, Robert Vogel, and it's he repeats it some several times in an interview, an oral history, and then. Wherever you find Ida Coverman's name from the time that she joined MGM in 1929 until now, where people are writing about her, it's a variation on that theme, that she was the power behind the throne, um, 
you know, she was the hidden uh, source of much of MGM's success. So, uh, you know, my goal really wasn't to prove if that was true or not, but it was the inspiration to find out, uh, at least in part of the inspiration, to find out just who she was and, you know, what did she do? Okay. Well, yeah, let's start. So like a lot of movie stars, she's, or, you know, people who came to Hollywood, she reinvented herself to get there. Um, let's start with her early career, which is actually a bit sordid. Well, um, well, her early career in Ohio as a stenographer for the U.S. Customs Office um, was, for its time in the late 19th century, in the early 20th century, was certainly... Um, where women were going in, in terms of becoming professionals and often not marrying and uh, living in the cities, uh, you know, as single women. But somehow she found herself with a group of people that were involved in a major extortion, blackmail, uh, affairs of impropriety. Uh, and these were her friends. And it turned out that either she knowingly you know, friended them, continued to be friends with them, or while all of these crimes were going on, or she found herself in the middle of something she had no idea about. But uh, it became a national scandal of extortion on a, of the uh, Big Four Railroad in Cincinnati, and and she uh, was considered a key witness. And then, you know, there were many trials and few convictions, but she had to escape. And did after it was all over, her her she was fired from her position, and uh, she ended up getting married to Mr. Coberman, and then flees to New York and starts a new life. Uh, but covert Oscar, her husband, was not with her, so uh, the story leaves him. He's only present very briefly. Yeah, his entire purpose seems to have been to allow her to drop the name that uh, Ida Brockway that had been in the newspapers, and from then on, she was Ida Coverman. Exactly, she disappears as Ida Brockway, and he he goes eventually goes to a, quite a grisly end, straight out of uh, Upton <laughs> Sinclair's The Jungle, as you point out, uh, falling from a high place into a vat of of. Uh, Fertilizer, fertilizer. Actually, one of their one of the armor company's auxiliary businesses of the, you know, uh, from the waste. Yes, it was, it was uh, a tragic end, and I don't know even if she knew what had come of him. Uh, his family apparently didn't know, and it was just revealed to me through years of looking and a tiny little excerpt in a newspaper. So. Huh. But they did go into great detail of the fall, <laughs> and, <laughs> and 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 that it was in 1934, which, interestingly enough, was the year of Upton Sinclair's gubernatorial campaign, which is so much talked about in Mank. Speaking of Mank, but um, uh, you know, so the irony was pretty significant, I thought. So the new Ida Coverman, then she goes to New York uh, and gets involved with the kind of things that that women were starting to find some political power with um, and, and social power, uh, this right in the aftermath of them getting the vote. Um, swimming associations, she's, she's a kind of a promoter or publicist for swimming associations, an organizer of them. 
this is the transition period uh, of her life into um, legitimacy as a middle-class matron, uh, and she helps to promote competitive swimming for women because uh, women were not allowed in the Olympics at that point, and she and other more well-known swimmers, whose names I can't quite pronounce, but at any rate, they form uh, – they're going up against the Amateur Athletic Association. They're trying, you know, to promote competitive swimming for women. But at any rate, so they start the Women's Swimming Association in Brooklyn, and they begin lobbying. And by the time she gets to California um, in 1920, women are allowed to compete in swimming in the Olympics. And that is the beginning of that history. But she's come out here to promote swimming uh, and does so in um, Huntington Beach with the Huntington Plunge. And she actually has a byline in the Los Angeles Times where she's promoting these extravaganzas and the king of surfing is, uh, you know, promoted as showing up. Uh, and uh, and then when the Olympics come, she, in 1932 to Los Angeles, she's also part of that promotion. But um, the, the link with women, women swimming I think you can see the connection with Annette Kellerman, the movie Million Dollar Mermaid being made later, but also just Esther Williams and the, the swimming extravaganza. So uh, her passion for swimming was very visible in Los Angeles. And while she's here, that's when she becomes politically involved uh, with the Southern California Republican Party, the Los Angeles Republican Party. There, I have no evidence of political activity in New York at this point, but it does become very obvious in California. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting. I mean, she's, she's involved with, you know, a kind of a man that they would have called in those days, an original Hoover man, Ralph Arnold, meaning that he was mm -hmm. one of the early supporters of Herbert Hoover. And it's interesting what's going on here. Arnold and Coverman are both sort of on the the more corporatist business side of the Republican Party against the progressive governor, Hiram Johnson. But it's also, I think, seen as a kind of rivalry between the political establishment in Northern California in the San Francisco area and up and coming Los Angeles, which was a newer city, but, you know, suddenly quite wealthy with the oil business and things like that. And that it was trying to establish its own position in California politics. And so they're very much involved in that. And supporting Herbert Hoover ultimately for the presidency is part of building a political machine in Southern California. Absolutely. I think you've captured it very well very well there were all of all of the tensions that California experiences is sort of a microcosm of what what is happening on the national level uh, we have the northern southern split we have the coastal uh re, you know inner hinterland split east west split and then we have um the urban rural as well as then the republican party which had been dominant in the state the progressives that are also regionally allied more in the north, but also in Southern California. I mean, Los Angeles was uh, quite progressive, but there was this growing power of the conservatives to block the progressive uh, movement, unionization, et cetera. So the tension between uh, uh, progressives and conservatives in Los Angeles is, 
you know, very much played out. Right. And what was her role in that? I mean, one of the things that's a recurring theme, she has a hard time getting a paycheck for what she's yeah. doing. She's very, <laughs> she's very active in a lot of things, but finding someone who will actually pay her for them is a lifelong struggle. Um, so what is, what is her job and her role at this point? She is initially hired by Ralph Arnold for a short-term position to send out you know, feelers for a Hoover candidacy in 1920. Uh, but over the next eight years, given the nature of volunteerism in political parties, except for the people at the top of the organizations, you have volunteers for the most part. So, but she was in that in-between place as a paid uh, position. And she is the executive, she eventually is officially elected as the executive secretary of the county committee, the Republican Party of Los Angeles. So she's the executive uh, secretary, while Ralph Arnold is the chair. The voluntary nature of working in a for a political party means you're constantly fundraising, even if you're not the one running for office. It's to keep the office going. And Ralph Arnold's goal was to make, uh, and therefore Ida Coberman's goal was to make this county committee important in between elections and to have influence and power within uh, Los Angeles and the region and the party, because usually these offices don't do much in between elections. So the goal was to keep it going. And as a woman, I'll just add, and then of course I provided examples where the men might be getting paid, but the women are getting less or, or, or being sidelined. So she fought through it and Ralph Arnold was her her uh, supporter, so he did everything he could as well. Well, let's bring the movie industry into this story. Sure. Um, one of the, you know, early on, various ways that uh, government and public policy start to impinge on the movie industry, um, one of them being the whole issue of casting, which, you know, has a deservedly sleazy reputation in the movie business. Uh, and it winds up with central casting being created to try and reform the process of crea of casting and the treatment of women on sets. There's a lot of controversy about uh, making young women who are working as like script girls or something, you know, work overtime on productions that are shooting for 18 or 24 hours a day. Um, tell me about that whole business. Well, this is, uh, I think, one of the more fascinating. Um, parts of the story because it it literally exemplifies this tension between the conservatives and the progressives. But if you're just looking at extras, um, the Industrial Welfare Commission, headed by Catherine Phillips Edson, who was the state's premier progressive reformer and the exec, you know, the executive director of that commission for 18 years, uh, they began to hear these reports from other bodies and. and uh, um, uh, you know, I mean, it was well known, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the thousands upon thousands of uh, young people alone or with their parents, boys and girls, young men and women coming to Hollywood wanting, you know, to be discovered. And so the reports were filtering up to the Industrial Welfare Commission, who decided to hold hearings to find out how can we methodically address this issue of hiring extras. And for the first time, I mean, I don't know that this has ever been published anywhere, but the testimony of Louis B. Mayer before the Industrial Welfare Commission is a fascinating dialogue of how how the industry is trying to 
hold off uh, regulation of extras, which in this case is women and minors, um, uh, and and how it was inevitable with the depression and then the New Deal coming in, and and it's fascinating how Louis B. Mayer is trying to work with the Industrial Welfare Commission. Uh, has a you know uh, initially an attitude of you know we'll do whatever we can. It isn't you know, really fair that some people get exploited. And then as it seems to be more um, imposing on the industry, he becomes more threatening later on, you know, that, oh, well, we can just hire, we can just hire men. You know, we don't even need to have women. And so the dialogue, the back and forth with Edson and Mayer is a fascinating uh, window, I think, into this process, um, while Beetson and the producers are setting up central casting. Well, yeah, it's kind of the the typical Hollywood answer of <clears throat> once government comes down on the neck, it's like, well, we'll create our own regulatory body because better we do it ourselves than we let you in to look at us too closely. And it, it's sort of reform two steps forward, one step back. But the other factor with Ida Coberman, while she isn't directly involved in those in the testimony, the person that replaces Ida Coberman, I mean, sorry, the person that replaces Catherine Edson is a woman named Mabel Kinney, who has been involved in this whole growth of women's groups paying attention to the movies and analyzing them and, you know, um, teaching women uh, and women's groups how to look at movies, view movies, understanding the system. Mabel Kinney is on the side of Ida Coberman as a conservative, and it changes sort of the direction of the commission. All right. So Herbert Hoover becomes president. Uh, Mayor is a delegate for him, in fact. And Ida Coverman achieves the, you know, her end goal of the 1920s. And then it's now what does she do? Well, she's now friends with Louis B. Mayer. So he hires her as his executive assistant. But it will prove to be much more than that. Let's talk about what she did at MGM then. All right. Well, I have to say, since even the book has come out, I continue to research. It's it's sort of just the nature of <laughs> either who who I am or what historians do. But I finally was able to clarify a photograph. It's apparently a photograph of the first uh, Academy of Awards. It's not the first, the one at the Biltmore um, in ni- May of 1929. And it's a picture uh that is intriguing because there's nothing else to go with it except Variety published uh, a layout of the tables, the numbers of the tables, but didn't have a list of who was sitting there. And there's there's nothing to explain who is who except the general nature of what it is. It's the Biltmore. At any rate, after the book came out, I, I really began to focus on this picture. And I find there is Ida Coberman sitting front and center um, at this at the first Academy Awards dinner. Um, So that brings her more official involvement with the movie industry back to May of 1929, um, whereas I kind of suggest that she did come in after Hoover's election and sometime in 1929, but couldn't quite figure it out. I think I I say in the book that she actually doesn't get there till later. But at any rate, to see that she was very much a central person in this photograph is is quite intriguing. The bottom line, what I'm trying to say is there really is no official documentation available to show when she joined officially. 
and she was still uh, working for the county committee at the time for quite a while until she until the next election. So the overlap is interesting. But right away, she she uh, begins to act on her her passions for opera and music and uh, city culture and carves out a, a niche for herself as a as a talent scout. And this was nothing in her. We don't know what her contract is. Her title was executive secretary and then later public relations. But, um, you know, apparently mayor said, you know, make a job for yourself. Here's your desk and and continue to do what you're doing, plus whatever else you want. You know, so she did. She created her own um, her own style, her own power. Uh, her desk was a source of power, being the keeper of the gate. And she had an eye for talent and was out constantly looking for it everywhere. Yeah, you talk about some examples of that. Like she, she sees Nelson Eddy. Uh, she uh, he was filling filling in. Um, it was like a last minute filling in. I mean, he was a known opera singer, but he performed at the Hollywood Bowl sort of at the last minute, and that's where she saw him. And so then she's she's advocating for him as a as a potential musical star, which certainly worked out. Right. And a young man with right. the unlikely name of Spangler Arlington Brew turns up, and he's good looking, and, and uh, pretty soon Robert Taylor is on a, is on a contract for MGM as well. The most interesting story to me has to do with Judy Garland. Um, mm-hmm. at first it's, it's kind of, there's kind of a setup rivalry between her and Deanna Durbin, uh, at MGM. I mean, we don't really remember that Deanna Durbin was at MGM cause she was such a universal star and MGM, right. MGM never really quite figured out what to do with her except to use her to, to make Judy Garland nervous and vice versa, I think. But, but yeah, tell us about her relationship with Garland. Let's put it this way. She knew there was something special about uh, Judy Garland, Francis Gum turned Judy Garland. Uh, it, it, it was evident. It was, it was so, um, I guess the way I would describe it, just so visceral. She, even though Coberman was an opera lover, she, she loved music. She loved performance. She loved the, the theater, the, you know, the production of it. And this young woman had a voice that, just uh, was incredible. So she she uh, pushed for her, but it took a while. But the bottom line is, it was Ida Coberman's persistence throughout whatever the process was, and that she got signed. And and then it took a while, of course, for she had to go through all of the training, like all of the young stars. You know, they do the schoolwork and they do the dance and the drama and the, all of the, the classes they went through. And so it was a real it was a um, it was a school for performing arts, basically, on the studios. So Ida Coberman would provide a shoulder when it got difficult and counsel these young people, as well as to sort of mediate with the with Judy's mother, who, you know, as I say, Ida Coberman befriended the mothers of many of the young and older stars. So there was this nucleus of mature women that she befriended uh, in the studio, and a lot of them were allied with her politically as well. Um, so, you know, the I my book is based on what I could find 
And if something was repeated in a memoir or a biography enough that it seemed to be validated, I would use it, but I could not confirm some of the worst stories or some of the best stories, whether they were real or not. So the way I describe their relationship is, is, uh, is one of someone who was nurtured. Uh, Judy Garland was nurtured by Ida Coverman, and Ida Coverman truly cared for her as a human being and as a talent. But she, Ida Coverman was torn between being uh, the, employed by the studio as well and had this dual mission uh, between the stars and the studio. So it was a tough spot to be in. Right. I mean, you talk about, you know, I mean, everyone knows that uh, MGM was really hard on Garland, you know, making her take uh, diet pills and things like that. And, uh, you know, you mentioned at one point that she feels like she's absolutely starving and Coverman is like sneaking her entire dinners that she's made. So, you know, she's still losing weight, but not at the you know, probably dangerously quick levels that MGM wanted. Right, right. And so she was, she was, uh, Coverman had to navigate herself around, but because she had made so many allies, she was able to do this. And, um, and, but, but the, the broader look is that as this young star is maturing and coming of age and becoming knowledgeable and at a very crisis time in Hollywood or in, well, in the country in general, uh, but certainly tumultuous times in the late thirties and early forties. Uh, I, I argue that much of the alienation that Judy Garland felt wasn't just because of her personal troubles with the, with the diet and performance discipline and whatever her personal troubles were, but they were also ideological and that as she comes of age, there is a split with her own mother, which is a completely different story. But as mothers and daughters have tension, Ida Coverman was like a maternal figure. And here is her sort of adopted daughter becoming a, a liberal Democrat before her eyes. And so that creates a lot of tension. And also, I, I argue, contributes to her break eventually with the studio, aside from the more well-known um, personal troubles. Right. I mean, there's that moment when Mayor is chewing her out for daring to vote for Democrats, you know, to vote for FDR. It's not like she, she became a communist. She just voted for FDR. Right. But Exactly. But, yeah. How dare yeah, you? How, I, can, but, how can you turn your back on us like this? You know, and he's practically, you know, on his knees singing to her at that point. Yeah. Yeah. No. So I, I think this is really a, a more important aspect, but it, it's less, you know, it's not as sexy and, it, and it's harder in a way to document. But given who Ida Coverman associated with in and out of the studio, um, this really had to be a very powerful um issue between them yeah. because of how public Ida Coverman was. Um, and, and everyone around her was a, a conservative Republican and on top of it also, which is another issue I keep exploring, uh, Christian scientists or members of religious, the religious science uh, oh, yeah. theology. So it just, it's, it, it, it was like a, um, not just a generational 
battle of of these two women in a way it, eventually it was it, i believe it was very ideological yeah well yeah you talk also about uh the moral rearmament movement which is one of those mm-hmm. things i mean it, it sounds almost victorian it's got kind of that you know ymca sound of you know muscular christianity but at the mm-hmm. same time it's very much you know the kind of hollywood cult that people get into today you know for it's kind of new agey uh idea of self-fulfillment that uh, in a way that sort of flatters ambitious people that what they're doing is for the good um and what's interesting is that while she's promoting this among MGM's stars and stable of you know employees MGM actually makes a movie that parodies it Susan and God you know i expect this to wipe divorce right out of the world what well my lady we stops movement Oh, when there are enough of us, you can't stop it. It's marching on like a glorious army. Look, maybe I'm dumb, but what is it? What is Lady Wigstaff's movement? Why, she's found God, dear, in a new way. Uh, well, I don't, I don't know that I even interpreted it as that it was a play before and and then the movie and uh, it, I did, I found it really kind of interesting the timing. But I, I have to say, I think it was much broader the MRA was a worldwide movement. Uh, uh, it was, um, it was, it grew, it grew to prominence in the years leading up to World War II. So, um, and Frank, uh, Frank Buckman was, was uh, trying to pretty much rally the entire world and, and, and people were searching for, an answer to, uh, you know, trying to hold off on the next uh, cataclysm of, of world war. So um, I don't, I don't know that I would equate it so much with the, um, this, the other similar kinds of um, alternate religions or, you know, experimental religions that, that appealed to people. This was, it was also considered a very powerful anti-union religion uh, or not religion, but movement. You know, uh, trying trying to control labor strikes in the area in the country, or if not all over the world. So, uh, you know, I, I think it was broader than that, and, and much more lasting as well, since it it continued into the fifties, sixties, and seventies, really. So, um, but yeah, it's it, it was quite um, quite influential. Yeah, <laughs> way beyond Hollywood, way beyond Hollywood. Yeah. Well, and another person that she kind of discovers uh, and gives a career to uh, for political reasons is Hedda Hopper. Uh, it sounds like there was resentment of the Hearst columnist Luella Parsons. And so Coverman uh, takes Hopper, who was an actress at that time, uh, and convinces her to become a rival gossip columnist, which will prove important in the, you know, as they both sort of become anti-communist, uh, you know, influential in the anti-communist movement after the war, since Hopper was very vocal about that in her columns. And Well, I think, um, yes, I think this is one of the ways in which Ida Coverman's hand has influenced history in ways that nobody could really imagine. But this, the anti-communist, uh, thrust of the post-World War One era is very much embedded in the women in the women's organization and trying to bring women into the 
Republican Party as conservative women. Um, so it's a, it has a long lasting history with women in the Republican Party, not, not only men, of course, I mean, of course, men, but because this was so new of, of really getting women into the parties, this was one of the organizing efforts for Coberman and her ally, Mabel. Uh, there's so many Mabels and Chinese, right. but um, <laughs> yeah, but at any rate. Um, well, now that's one uh, of the things I thought from, from yeah. your book is you realize, you know, she's not... She's not a unicorn. She's not completely unique. I mean, her role was unique to her, but there are other women who found these positions of power during that time, from Catherine Edson to Mabel Willebrandt, and who was an assistant. U.S. Assistant Attorney General. Right, right. Right, yes. In fact, this is part of what I was trying to do, is show that uh, she was a leader, but there were several, and yet nobody, nobody kind of put them all together into this movement this, from 1920 on. Um, and, and Grace Stormer and uh, other professional women that created this network of, of power um, on all levels, local and state. So, um, and then to bring it into the movie industry. But uh, what we were saying before about the anti-communism and Hedda Hopper, that Hedda, or my understanding is that Hedda's career was sort of on the rocks and she was sort of floundering around and she had toyed with, she did some radio bits and, um, and then maybe did some, a few works of uh, newspaper column, gossip column. But, but because of, as you point out, uh, Mayer's interest in countering Hearst and Luella Parsons, Coverman suggested Hopper, and then you know the rest is history. But that they initially kind of took it out on the road as well and uh, played like Hedda Hopper is this neophyte in politics. And uh, but she had run for the county committee in 1932, so she was well ensconced in the political arena long before her column became politicized. Um, and uh, yeah, so part of Coverman's legacy is Hedda Hopper. All right. So the, the uh, blacklist era comes in and, and it seems like Coverman tries to kind of negotiate again, somewhat like the central casting thing tries to kind of negotiate this for Hollywood. You know, she, she doesn't want the, the ability to damage Hollywood to get out of their control. Um, so, I mean, what's her, what's her role during this time? Someone somewhere had suggested that she was not really supportive of HUAC or the uh, early investigations or what was looming uh, from the federal government into weeding out communists. But I, I couldn't find any evidence that she had uh, opposed it nor directly supported it, except for the groups that she belonged to. And you'll have to forgive me if I can't remember every name at the moment, but uh, she belonged to these groups of actors that very much supported um, the, I don't know, let's just be blunt, the witch hunt. But, you know, it, it was a little more nuanced than that, really. But uh, you know, the, every if you if, if it's guilt by association, which is not really a good thing to do, but this is what I have to work with. She was right in there as either a member or a leader or a founder or at least affiliated with with groups that that approved of let's weed out 
the, these enemies. So I don't, I don't see her being very visibly active, you know, raw, raw, outspoken, but she's there behind the scenes uh, in, with these groups. Um, and she's mentioned at the he- in the hearings and the testimony a couple times by, um, you know, key conservatives. So this is really what we have to go on is this was something that she approved. But don't you think also like her, the fact of her existence could be used to give Hollywood credibility? You know, it's like, well, if Ida Coverman approves, you know, generally of what we're doing, we can't be that bad because she's a respectable Republican woman. We all know her as someone who supports the right things and, and all of that. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, but she was known, you know, her politics were well known. Yeah. Uh, and so I think a lot of respectable people were similar to her. You know, they were doing their patriotic duty. Right. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, it's like she got the award uh, by this local group. Uh, and the only two other people who ever got it were Walt Disney and Cecil B. DeMille. I mean, so it maybe it was a very prestigious award, but it also it's perhaps a pretty right symbol- wing one, yeah, 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 right, right. So it just depends on how you want to interpret it. Yeah. But yes, you can single her out as being, you know, that important if she's on the level of these two individuals, you know. But what else? What else does that say? Yeah, yeah. And unlike them, she uh, dies around that time relatively. Uh, not poor, but uh, certainly not as rich as other people in Hollywood. Um, maybe that's kind of a lesson of that sort of mid-century feminism is that it still didn't pay off. You know, the the the, the fight for the fight for the paycheck never ended. Well, you know what? This is also kind of interesting because people have assumed uh, that she had wealth. Um, but she couldn't have really supported her lifestyle if she didn't have the per- perks that went with her position. So even if she didn't accumulate wealth by the time of her death, she had lived a life that was, you know, in and of the big and the rich and famous and the elite. She was she was the host or the hostess or the or the attendee. Um, it was a very expensive life. Even back earlier in the 20s, she's saying to Ralph Arnold, you know, I've got all these memberships. I can't, I've got to pay right. for it. You, you know, you have to have some level of income to even, you know, circulate right. among to play, these to groups. To play so, in that game, yeah. Exactly. So, so even though she, even though she lived modestly, she, in terms of property, say, or in the bank account, she lived an illustrious lifestyle. And so that had to have been, you know, uh, sort of part of the, you know, what is it? The benefits of her position, whatever her salary. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but, but I will say, but then the people around her, the professional women around her were either making good money or married to people who made good money, you know, so it, 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 it wouldn't have mattered really because, um, women were making success, you know, they were making money. Right. She lived the the life of the woman who is married to a wealthy industrialist minus the wealthy industrialist. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So what made you want to write about this woman? What do we, what do we get from her story that is worth spending this much time 
on <laughs> recovering from the depths of the past? Well, uh, I wanted to write the story because my, I come from the progressive era. I, my research was in progressive era uh, women's history in California. And then I did a book on Stanley Mosk, who's more mid-century liberal Democrat. And between the two of them, Ida's name kept coming up in my research. And I, you know, started to look and see, well, who is she? What is she? What, what do we know about it? Well, it turned out in the hundreds and hundreds of references to her, and even in the last few years, more and more has been written about her in scholarly works. Um, no one had ever written a full biography. Nobody knew where she came from. So the, the intrigue was there. Uh, especially the connection with um, the Industrial Welfare Commission, which is what I had done my early research on. So um, no one knew the story. And then what I found is that most, the more and more I learned about her, most everything that had been written about her was wrong. And so I was yeah. trying to figure <laughs> out how can the same a story be repeated. Was she really Herbert Hoover's secretary? Did she meet him in New York with the gold fields of uh, consolidated gold fields of South Africa? I mean, none of that turned out to be true. So that kept fueling me on. You know, what is it? What is the story? You know, so it was really being a detective, and it was fascinating because I knew really nothing. It was just this is a story that has to be written. Uh, and the question is, why didn't anybody do it before? <laughs> because it's hard and it took a long time. And, uh, you know, it, it really, I didn't know if it was going to be a story, you know, and so I can see where people would have to make choices. Um, but what do we get from her? Well, it's a complicated story. This is a very successful, powerful individual who led a unique life in so many ways, an extraordinary life in you know in at least three phases that I've demarcated and each life was invisible to the other and just that alone you know is is like how can someone get lost to history if do are they intentionally doing it or is it who's writing the history but it's also a story of survival here's a woman who reincarnated herself each time discovering new talents and skills and influencing history and also she reflects uh, the, her times, the changing times of women's roles and this tension between progressivism and conservatism. And she led, she helped to lead a movement as, as you pointed out, Southern California is a rising economy, a rising political power, and she's at the forefront of it. Um, and, and then she also is a tremendous cultural influencer. I don't think we realize how on a day-to-day -day basis, if you're into, you know, Hollywood movie, old Hollywood movies, or even if you're touring Los Angeles, her hand is everywhere. Um, and for good or bad, her politics aside, she 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 touched our city, our region, and our our, our movie history, our Hollywood history, our city history. She had she, her hand is everywhere, and and I think she should not be. Uh, I shouldn't. I think she should not remain in the shadows anymore. I think people should know. Um, of her of her influence and the network that she was in. Dear Mr. Gable, I am writing this to you and I hope that you will read it so you'll know 
heart beats like a hammer, and I stutter, and I stammer every time I see you at the picture show. I guess I'm just another fan of yours, and I thought I'd write and tell you so. That's Judy Garland singing the national anthem of MGM in the 30s and 40s. Jacqueline Braitman's She Damn Near Ran the Studio, The Extraordinary Lives of Ida R. Coverman, is out now from University Press of Mississippi. There will be a link in the show post at nitrateville.com. What makes a movie a film noir? Shadowy cinematography? Sinister jazzy music? Dialogue that could cut you in a dark alley? But Kimberly Truller's new book suggests a candidate male authors have mostly overlooked. Fashion. In film noir style, The Killer 1940s, published by Goodnight Books, Truller reveals the importance of costuming to noir's sense of style and menace. From Lana Turner's all-white outfit in The Postman Always Rings Twice, to the ankle bracelet on Barbara Stanwyck's Phyllis Diedrichson. So let's let's talk fashion. Okay. <laughs> well, we don't have to talk fashion. Let's talk film noir. <laughs> yeah. Now, I thought it was interesting. I I hadn't really, you know, being a guy, what I don't pay attention to these things. So I hadn't thought about how pivotal fashion is in film noir, that it's, it's so many examples of it, set, you know, setting trends and also being used so well to define character. Um, right. That, that just sort of, you know, zoomed over my my dense male head. Well, I, I almost consider myself an honorary male at... <laughs> <laughs> this is not I was a science nerd through much of school, so fashion was way down the totem pole on things I paid attention to. But as I started to seriously study film um twenty some years ago, I because the style does stand out so much in, in these films in particular in, in film noir. I thought it was unusual that it just wasn't part of the conversation. And so when I do my lectures and screening series, um, there are a great many men who come who are, you know, avid fans of classic film who are saying, you know, this is an additional layer of information that we just, you know, we just didn't know. Um, And so you know, to give something new to people who know these films so well, including myself, is just really rewarding. Yeah. So, so how did you then get interested in fashion? It just it just grew out of seeing the films, or it did. It really did. Um, I mean, I was kind of clueless in that department, and so it really did take movies like Rear Window, for example, that. Um, cause I was a kid of the eighties and really eighties fashion. I'm sure even, you know, was right. not that great. <laughs> um, and so to have those role models suddenly in front of me, I really started paying attention to 
that for my own personal benefit while I was studying, you know, the directors and the actors and screenwriters and so on, as we, we all do. Um, and then I just got to a point where I was like, well, where, where is, you know, discussion of the contributions of the costume designer. And so when I just started digging in there, um, it was a bit appalling at how little there was out there on the biographies of these people, as well as, you know, really digging in. And then um, I actually started selling vintage clothing and really started seeing the intersection of, you know, these films on fashion at the times that they premiered. And then, of course, you know, being a girl, I get fashion magazines. And also I saw it there, too, where people were like, oh, that's so original. And I was sort of screaming out loud, but that's from Top Hat, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So that's kind of where everything collided and where I started to share information publicly. And then I got hired to be a professor and all that. And the, the public speaking started after that because there really weren't too many people studying this area, discussing this area, at least from, you know, there's a lot of little fashionistas out there that, you know, they, they love Audrey Hepburn, you, yeah. <laughs> you know, they might share images from classic film that way, but a, a true serious, uh, analysis of them and their work was there weren't a lot of people doing that. Yeah, I feel that you know there's a lot of attention right now about identifying and you know talking about women directors of the time period. Mm-hmm. And I mean that's all great, but there aren't that many. And right. compared to that, you have all these fields within the production system that w- did have you know prominent women contributors who were serious creative artists and are a big part of what made the film. And, you know, just because some guy mm. has his name on the director credit doesn't mean there aren't many female sensibilities at work in the movie. I, I think that's absolutely true and, and a great point. Um, and also in line with that story is just that even costume design was dominated by a lot of men for many years and it took very strong dedicated women to um to really assert themselves as the heads of these costume design departments um but to your point i I would say the bulk of them did end up being women and i think that is a great story that that could be out there about you know they love finding the lois weber's and, and all that, or on the director side, or the Francis Marion's on the writing side. Um, but yeah, it's like what there's something, there's something, and I get this prejudice a lot. There's just something about them being closed. You know, they're just closed, and it's like, well, it's not just lighting; it's right. cinematography. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it takes a lot of skill to do that and you know when you have a studio like MGM where Thalberg was all about Cedric Gibbons and Adrian forming the style voice of MGM it's like it's not just clothes 
Though it's funny uh, reading about like the Maltese Falcon. It was just closed for Bogart. I mean, he was, you know, yeah. you're talking about all this stuff about Mary Astor's costume, and, the, and then we find out Bogart was just supposed to bring his nice suits to work, and that was good yeah. enough. And I mean, that was true for most men. Active. Most of the male actors were bringing their own clothes to work, especially at studios like Warner Brothers, which is known for really controlling those budgets. Sure. Um, you know, like most of the men in film, there, there are some exceptions, but the money went towards the women. But the men were given some guidance from the costume designers. And like Paul Henry in Casablanca, it was kind of a 50-50 split um, between suits that he brought from home. And of course, his suits were all like British bespoke tailoring. You know? yeah. So Ori Kelly wasn't objecting to that. And then Ori Kelly built some more um, that went along with that. But for the most part, men were wearing um, a lot of their own clothes on screen. Yeah, which is, you know, there's a picture of Bogart in here in one of his suits, the one where the, the collars keep turning up on his shirt. Yeah. And he's still dressing like a gangster in that. He's yeah. Sam Spade, but he's still yeah. kind of looking like he's running the rackets in Yeah, he's right on the edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and that's a great point, too, because that is such a transition moment for Bogart in his career where he was, shifting from those gangster roles into, um, I mean, Sam Spade himself is like right on the line of, right. you know, he, he could go either way. You think he's the good guy. <laughs> you right. hope he's the good guy. Um, but yeah, that's a great observation about that too. Well, yeah, let's talk about the Maltese Falcon. Cause you know, as I was thinking, as I was starting to pick up the book, that Maltese Falcon is pretty much the begin the serious beginning of noir. I mean, you can point to yeah. other movies that are sim, you know, that are ter- starting to become noir, but it's the yeah. big hit. And yet, yeah. uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy, Mary Astor's character, does not dress for noir yet. I mean, she's got the big puffy, uh, you know, thing around her neck and, and she's got kind of a Gibson girl look with her hair way up and stuff like that, which she sort of naturally had that look anyway with the high chin and all that. And yet you say that you do see the beginnings of a noir look in her, in her costuming. You do. I mean, you're, you know, all the films in the early forties were, were still inheriting a lot of the design elements of the 30s her hair being the biggest one I mean I remember watching it when I was a kid and the hair put me off um, because it just didn't seem to fit with the rest of the the style of the film and it's because I mean that that shingle haircut of hers is distinctly a 30s haircut and like you said the fur um, that particular kind of fur is much more of the 30s. But it's like any decade, there's the, the first years of any decade are really a transition point. And so you can see both um, happening. Um, you know, you do get some, uh, you, you do get her in a skirt suit. You do get, you know, the strong shouldered robe and the blouse and skirt. I mean, those are, you know, the minimalist styles of the 1940s, but there are definitely still these 30s hangers on, if you will. 
Yeah, well, you mentioned the suit, and I think that's kind of a quintessential uh, noir thing. Even Definitely. though we associate, you know, if you were going to name famous costumes, you'd think of things like the black dress in Gilda or, sure. you know, Lana Turner in her all-white bathing suit sure. or things like that. But so much, sure. so many noir women are in suits. They're basically armored up for business. They are. Um, and then what's, what's remarkable is that some of those suits are still iconic, like in a sea of suits, a decade filled with skirt suits. You know, you've got the ones on Lauren Bacall and two of her movies that are still like I just was flipping through a fashion magazine the other day and there was a hound, hound's tooth suit you know right it's like there there those are the stand or the Mildred Pierce you know pinstripe suit it's like those just go on and on and on and so it's remarkable that um yeah the the gowns absolutely are burned into the brains of fashion designers but that some of those suits are too yeah yeah when well, it shows the the job you know, as as women were going into the workplace in the forties, they were kind yeah. of dressing for the workplace in in movies as well. Um, now, one of the you know when we want to get into a real noir look, you know, one that was totally created for the forties and became very uh, you know influential. Um, you have a long section talking about this gun for hire, and which um. really did it for both men and women. You got. Veronica Lake in, you know, gowns and with her peekaboo haircut and all that. But it also sort of solidified the trench coat as, as standard yeah. dress for for men in noir. Yeah, Alan Lab definitely doesn't get um, the props that he deserves because he his look in the trench um, in noir, because um, January 42, Casablanca came out, which, of course, had Bogart in his first iconic trench coated and fedora combo. Uh, but as far as noir, Alan Ladd was in that look before anybody else was. And also, you know, reading this for me is interesting because just the, all the, the engineering problems in getting costumes <laughs> to look good on, on women are, you know, something completely outside my experience. So it's talking here about Edith head, uh, trying to figure out how to make Veronica Lake not look like a munchkin because she was four foot yeah. 11. And it, <laughs> right. you, know, you say found a natural, a certain natural asset to work with. Veronica had big breasts. She said, or maybe I should do the, uh, uh, what's her name? Edna and in the Incredibles voice <laughs> for this, um, yes, which yes. made her seem like, like a bigger woman on screen. Um, yeah. So, you know, she, she found ways and, you know, long draping the dress as long as possible down to the floor, uh, you know, made it seem like there was some height to her, even though it was an, an illusion. When I give my talks, I have a slide that has, uh, Dorothy L'Amour, Paulette Goddard, uh, and Veronica Lake in it standing side by side. And Paulette and Dorothy were only five three, five four. They weren't that tall, but you really see how tiny Veronica Lake is yeah. <laughs> next to them. And she's wearing one of those gowns, you know, like the you know the plunging neckline, long sleeve to the floor. But next, you know, when there's context, you know, you can see 
how tiny she is. And it's just all the more remarkable that she really does look like, a, you know, a normal size right. woman and on not the screen. Like a seventh but... grader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then of course, Alan Ladd's, you know, height also helps, you know, you put two shorter people next to one another right. and you can't really tell that they're short. Yeah. I was just thinking that about her being in, uh, Sullivan's Travels with Joel McRae, who's, you know, like John Wayne or somebody, one of those big Western guys. Well, it's like he's, I'm just flashing through some scenes myself. There's a scene when they're at the diner and they're both sitting down. So they should put her on a phone book if they needed to, (laughs) or in the car together. And he's in bed for some of the scenes. There's a lot of sitting, sitting and lying down. (laughs) <laughs> That's how you get around it, I guess. All right. So another, I thought this was really interesting. We talk about, um, I wake up screaming and mm. how they costumed, um, let's see who, who was, who was the costume designer on that? Gwen Wakeling. Okay. Um, for Fox in 1940, yeah. 42 or three. One. Or whatever, one. one. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's very early. It came out not long after Maltese Falcon. And That's right. so you've got Carol Landis as the bad girl and mm-hmm. Bev, uh, Betty Grable as her sister, who's the good girl and how you costume the two of them differently to represent that. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, what's interesting about that one, too, is that Carol Landis was, there's so many parallels between her on-screen character and what happened in her life off-screen. It's just kind of crazy. But yeah, I mean, they obviously, they lean into her sexuality or sensuality with, like, very body-hugging, slinky um, costumes, whereas Betty Grable is you know, especially in the beginning, there's a lot of lace happening. Um, (laughs) There's everything. And then like, you know, there's scenes where they're both in their um, respective robes. And of course, you know, Carol's is just, you know, she's got a sheer one, they're sleeveless, they're barely covering, you know, a silk charmeuse lip dress underneath whereas Betty's in like a little you know there's little long sleeve more lace little floral (laughs) design on it so the the contrast it's like without them opening their mouths you can get a sense of their characters well and that's the interesting thing I think is part of the challenge with noir becomes getting these actresses to go along with kind of being dressed cheap you know to look cheap and mm. the quintessential example of that is Double Indemnity, where, you know, everything about, you know, Billy Wilder says everything about her is supposed to look phony in some level. So yeah. she's got the, yeah. the blonde wig. She's got the ankle bracelet, you know, yeah. even though, you know, they're, they're nouveau riche, she and her husband in yeah. California, yeah. but yeah. she's basically trailer trash. Uh, yeah, in the context, yeah, of the like film. she's overcompensating for whatever that backstory is with all the jewelry and wearing, you know, a, not not quite appropriate ensembles for the home, right. <laughs> uh, especially Certainly excessive. Quarantine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 
they're yeah. I mean, she's wearing a gown to seduce him. So yeah, and yeah, definitely everything about her screams phoniness. Yeah, um, and in well, you know, James M. Cain seems to be you know the great the great American author of. You know, women dressing cheaply, mm. revealing mm. revealing themselves in in how they wind up being costumed in the movie adaptation. In Mildred Pierce, I just watched that recently, and you know, I mean, talk about the costumes are all about communicating where is her social status at a particular moment. She's you yeah, know, she's got the waitress costume, which of course is a great co- cause of scandal for Vita in the film. And then yeah. she, you know, as she rises, she's you know, dressing more fans fancily. But we know where that's going because the opening scene has her in a mink as she's thinking of yes. taking a plunge into the ocean. Yes, after possibly killing someone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean James M. Cain, I love because his, you know, even more so than Hammett or Chandler, really delves into the sexuality of his characters. Um, but the thing that's interesting about him is that I find that he also is capable of empathizing with them a lot of times. Right. Um, you know, like you, even in the movie, uh, of Postman Always Rings Twice, you empathize with her. Like you, you really feel her sense of being trapped and kind of go, "Mm, I can kind of understand why she might need to kill this guy, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she's. They're all about yeah. surviving the depression. Yeah. So, yeah. and they make what you know what choices they have. I mean, it's like Jane Austen. Yeah. You know, you yeah. there's only so many guys are going to turn up at the manor house, so you better pick right. one of them. Right. Yeah, you better make the best with what options you've got. So yeah, uh, I thought it was interesting. You said that Stanwyck, in particular, really liked her costumes, and she said she kind of felt sexy for the first time when she started getting some of these in that and Lady Eve. Um, yeah. Which definitely I can see that in Lady Eve. I mean. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think it was more um, like she had never felt glamorous before. Like that just wasn't Stanwick's. Like she was great friends with Joan Crawford. And that was, that was Crawford's thing. Like she was all in about glamour on screen, off screen. That just wasn't Stanwick's. Thing. Like she would do things for the character, like Babyface. You see her get over the top and right. that, but it was all for the character. She didn't have a lot of interest in it. So Lady Eve is that pivot point where she started to go, oh, you know, I really am feeling this for the first time. And the, the funny thing about uh, Double Indemnity was that she confessed to Hedda Hopper that she felt sexy in that wig, which is like right. the one thing that we all are like, why, Billy, why did you choose <laughs> that wig? <laughs> yeah, well, because she looks phony in it, yeah. so Exactly, yeah, yeah. we get it now. Yeah, she, but that was another one when I saw it as a kid, that the hair was a distraction to me originally. Like yeah. what, what is happening there? <laughs> Mildred Pierce, I think of as, you know, maybe the, the shoulder pads, greatest moment, on, you oh. know, moment on cinema. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's also an interesting one where Crawford fought hard against the costumes that they wanted to put her in, but they're perfect in the film. Yeah. I mean, I've seen, a, there, there were a lot of photo tests 
that were done for Mildred Pierce. So there's a ton of costumes that I can see where the battles were. And in Crawford's defense, if if her fighting got her these costumes that we now see on screen. Right. Uh, good, good for her. Well done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, she, she clearly knew what she was doing. But the funny thing about that is that Curtiz is the one that said absolutely no shoulder pads in this movie, like from yeah. the, you know, her audition on was no. So it's like, did you not see them every day coming in? <laughs> Michael right. Curtiz? Like, yeah. Um, yeah, like it is, it, he, Milo Anderson out shoulder padded Adrian, who's yeah. the one that's renowned for the shoulder pads. But they, they're used differently, I think, than in the, you know, in the, in the MGM, the MGM glamour yeah. films, it's like she's, uh, Norma Shearer playing, you know, uh, yeah. the mistress of Napoleon or something, you know, it's, it's all about being that sort of grand dam and we're much more you know we're not like in with the fantasy as much in mildred pierce as we're observing her character in these costumes i don't know did that make any sense it did it did no i'm totally with you and i think another reason they work is because uh you know that character is that entrepreneur and you really, you know, those shoulder pads get more and more prominent, the bigger a business woman she becomes. Um, so it's like that, that's her fighting uniform right there. Um, so you really get a sense of the strength of that particular character through the use of those shoulder pads. Thank you for bailing me out on that one. (laughs) (laughs) I knew what you were saying. (laughs) I thought it was really interesting reading about Claire Trevor uh, mm. in, in Murder My Sweet, and and you know that she actually had a fashion background, uh, yeah, of a sort. So and so she was, you know, it's not just a matter of they bring her something and she looks at it and, and approves or disapproves, but that she was actually working with was it Milo Anderson again? Um, no, um, Edward Stevenson. Edward Stevenson. Uh, yeah. On, on, on murder my sweet. Yeah. Very invested in it. And there's several actresses that, um, well, they, a lot of them became informed, whereas, and, and would weigh in on costumes and work with their costume designers. But you, as you said, Claire came in with actual training, especially because like her father was, you know, the tailor for wall street. So, um, she just with that alone, she had background, but then she also studied, you know, construction and all that. So, yeah, she's very informed and very involved. And so she brings in one of the innovations that will stick to noir, which is the the slit skirt that goes all the way up. <laughs> uh, you say at yeah. one point they like it it tore and they had to like move a table in the way because otherwise no it didn't tear but when she sat on the couch where they're both leaning back and she's basically seducing him um, talking about the the necklace on the couch and they're having drinks they had to move that table with the bar set up in front of her because the slit went up so high. Um, so it's like, it was, they were able to effectively hide 
the the too much leg in her opening shot, but when it was and that was from the side, um, but when it was straight on in the couch shot, they they needed something to you know calm down the production code people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now another you know an important figure you talk about is uh, Lauren Bacall. And mm. in the films that she made with Bogart that you kind of see the progression of their relationship. And part mm. of that is in her costuming. But you make a good point about how Bacall, it's not overt sexuality with her. I mean, in her attitude toward Bogart, you get the kind of, you know, the teasing back and forth of their relationship. But it's not so much in the clothing. Um, again, she's in suits as you said, the, the houndstooth suit. And dresses that are, she's, you know, she's very covered up, you know, in contrast to someone like a Carol Landis. Like, they're basically on opposite ends of the spectrum, yet both very sexy in their own ways. And I think to have an abnot, um, you know, was was her learning being introduced really being shaped by Howard Hawks and and Howard Hawks's wife um as far as style and the delivery um that she became known for big sleep you start to see Lauren coming into her own style still taking from um Slim Hawks the houndstooth suit is practically a duplicate of one from Slim Bone Closet. But, you know, the wearing of that metallic jacket with the pencil skirt and the, the, the belted dresses that are just completely covered up, there's, there's nothing overtly sexual about them, but it's the way that she is and the way she carries herself. And like you said, you know, that tete-a-tete with Bogart, that slight insolence in everything she did, that that's what made it work. This struck me about, you know, speaking of putting all the assets out there, um, as opposed to what Lauren Bacall did with uh, Rita Hayworth and Gilda, she, uh, let's see, there's a description of the the gown was a marvel of engineering in addition to mm. beauty. Inside there was a harness like you put on a horse. Oh, that sounds appealing. Yeah. <laughs> And we, comfortable. Yeah, we put gross. <laughs> so comfortable. We put gross grain under the bust with darts. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds scary. <laughs> and there, and three stays, <laughs> one in the center, two on the sides. Then we molded plastic, softened over a gas flame, and shaped around the top of her of the dress. No matter how she moved, right. the dress did not fall down. Um, that sounds like something that came out of an aircraft factory in the time period. Uh, it does. <laughs> It does, like they're putting the war production yeah. to good use there. Yeah. I mean, it's like where you, you have to just be a genius because it's like, where would you even think of doing some of that? Right. Just, yeah. Incredible. We're way beyond Bob Mackey with, with double-sided tape here. Way <laughs> beyond double-sided tape. Yeah. When you're molding plastic, it's like <laughs> <laughs> when you've got to break out the stuff that I've got in my garage to shape yeah. a, a dress. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the, like, and, and the, the dart and those kind of things, those are the, the seams that you see on the front of it. So just everything was designed to basically stick to her. Right. Um, 
and I've I've looked at some of the you know there's actually not that many costumes uh, like of that caliber left out there. But I remember when I had to authenticate Elizabeth Taylor's first wedding dress, um, which was created by Helen Rose and the team at MGM. And they had like multiple layers, like there's the layer that we all see on the outside, but like the gilded dress, it's like they sort of step into something that attaches to them. And then that outer layer that we see attaches to that. Um, it's like you just no, there, there aren't the capabilities today to do the kinds of things that they did back in the golden age of Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, and it might break California laws against cruelty to actresses. To... <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Let's go to Lana Turner. Now, um, yeah. it's interesting, and Postman always rings, rings twice. Uh, you talk about... Who's the designer on that? Is that Edith Hedigan? Irene. 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 Right, Irene. Yeah. Um, that she had the idea of using color, you know, use the same color for the, the you know, different characters, almost like a light motif in music. Uh, yeah. Which, this being black and white, that only gives them two colors to work with. But, uh, That's right. You know, so she's in white, which, yeah, the first time John Garfield sees her in, in the in her bathing suit it's it's this vision palpable why he's stuck then and why he's going to go through with the noir plot well i just want to clarify that's not a bathing suit it's shorts it's a sun suit so it's a little yes it's a little halter top with shorts she does wear a white bathing suit later on when they're doing the swimming but this is but it's it's what girls it's it's a name of an outfit from that era called a sun suit. Yeah. Again, how do I know? You know, what do I know? I know. Is, well, so. I had to learn this stuff too. <laughs> it's not like I was like, okay, never heard that before. What was different about costuming Lana Turner versus some of some of these others? I mean, there's there's clearly not molded plastic involved. No, there's not. Though I mean, you know, a lot of people. Uh, you know, it's pretty easy to observe. She's got an almost all white wardrobe, but what what was interesting was finding out that there was really um, two theories, you know, there were two thought processes going on. One with the director and the producer who were concerned about Lana's uh, love life off screen, you know, you know, tainting her image and they didn't want the audience to already start out by saying, okay, this is a bad girl. We know Lana and she's probably playing a bad girl here. Yeah. <laughs> and so they, and, and they also were dealing with the, the production code administration. So it's like their thought processes were let's make her seem as innocent as we possibly can while she's playing this basically vile character. And that was something that, the production code administration often um, not forced costume designers to do. Well, actually, yes, they did. Because I've (laughs) seen back and forth memos on the color noir Lever to Heaven with Gene Tierney. Sure. And because that character was 
so bad. I mean, that's even next level bad. Right. Um, they, <laughs> they just, they kind of forced them to put her in the most conservative of costumes. Like there's, there's nothing overtly sexy that she's where, I mean, everything Jean Tierney wears is sexy, but you know, she's wearing like, you know, blouse and <laughs> pants and that kind of thing. And part of that was because they overcompensated for that character being that bad. And so in that same, you know, vein of thought, that was take Arnett's thought of like, let's put her in the white because that'll head off a lot of opposition from the production code people. And then, like you said, Irene treated it like an opera where, you know, she basically had a theme. Her, her character's theme was white. Um, with a couple key moments of, of black. And so it's just interesting to just get, you know, a, you know, we talk about, again, this isn't just clothes. Like, look at how many people were thinking about the color of this woman's costumes in that movie. It's just really fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. You mentioned Jean Tierney. I think the interesting thing that you say about with her is that as opposed to like Veronica Lake where everything is sort of sculpted to accentuate whatever height they can get out of her with Jean Tierney, everything's kind of like soft fabrics, not, not strongly shaped in, yes. some, in some of these costumes. Not a lot of edges. Because, yeah. because she had the figure to fill them out. Was that basically? Well, I mean, it was, it was appropriate to the, the character, but also different designers lean different ways. Like Irene was known for having, um, you know, much sharper tailoring, no matter what it was, whether it was a dress, a suit, a sunsuit. Um, and Edith Head also was known for her tailoring and tended to be a minimalist. Um, but Oleg Cassini, um, who worked with his then wife in Shanghai Gesture, had a totally different, you know, he loved the, the glamour of the Adrians and, and Travis Banton. So his gowns for her leaned that way. And Bonnie Cashin also, like Oleg, came from the fashion industry. Um, and so, and that character was all about you know, at least for the period that she was with Waldo Lidecker and Laura was all about this over the top couture um, style. But, and so, and both of those designers, Bonnie Cashin was renowned for having less structure in her designs. She liked a, an easier and a more ease in her designs. So yeah, there's a definite contrast between Tierney with both of those designers and Lana with Irene. Well, and Laura's an interesting case because you basically get the costume designer on screen in, you know, in the Waldo Lidecker is sort of dictating her clothing to her to create a certain image in the course. Although of the that woman in the movie is not Bonnie Cashin. Right. But representing kind of that process. Yes. Of, of... Yes. Waldo was absolutely dictating. I'm sure he dictated the design in, in Laura's apartment, too. Like, that man was about shaping that girl, you know, yeah. the way that he wanted her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the war ends, and 
you, there's kind of a, I would say, a, a regression to the mean from suits and being armored up for these kind of movies to more feminine fashion. I mean, you have a nice picture of Grace Kelly with in a big skirt to sort of demonstrate that. Uh, it's yeah. Some, um, so you think that they were trying to communicate a different idea of what women's role roles were now that the war was over? No, because, I mean, it was basically because Christian Dior's new look, which was that, you know, like the rear window shot you're talking about of Grace Kelly with those full, longer skirts, um, the the world was swept up in that trend. So costume designers, and that, that's part of the history, the timeline, is that costume designers got caught with their pants down. And there were a lot of movies in the can ready to be released and others that were in production that they had to just either scrap them or redesign for them because women were so into the, you know, hyper femininity of Christian Dior's new look that they, they had to start everything kind of over again. The thing about noir, though, is that it's just the um, types of movies did not demand such an immediate shift in the fashion. You'll see a, a gradual softening of the shoulder where the shoulder pads aren't so prominent anymore. And you'll just see just a little bit more, less edge more rounding. Um, but the noir films did not get hit as hard as the, the rest of the films that were in production at the time. But that's why the shift happened, not because costume designers were, it was like one of the first times that costume designers had to follow the fashion of the day. They were so used to setting the trends that they were completely shocked when they were, you know, behind a ball, so to speak. Now the last one in the book, and this is interesting, uh, is sunset Boulevard and you're yeah. creating a very, you know, they were creating a very distinctive look for someone who already had a look. They needed to find a way to make her gla a glamorous dinosaur of the silent era. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, she, and she had a lot of thoughts of her own on that and, you know, knew how to apply it you know, acting styles from back then and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it was a dream project for Edith head because Edith was responsible for just assisting wherever she could, which included washing her hosiery at the time. Like she started in 23 when Gloria Swanson was at her absolute height at Paramount. So it was just a complete dream job and like you said, it's like there's a lot of elements that are drawing from Gloria's silent film days, that style, um, while also Edith is weaving in things of that new look that I was just talking about here and there with the the much more fabric involved in the, the costumes, longer skirts, fuller skirts that kind of thing right but using things like leopard prints and stuff like that oh. to, to suggest the the excess of the silent era excess and then the predatory nature of 
Norma Desmond. Um, there's a lot of leopard. There's a lot of fur that's woven into her costumes because she is trying to get William Holden to never leave that house. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's the last noir that you talk about, except that you talk about all through the book about how aspects of that look have stayed in the movies. I mean, when, you know, there are, there are obvious, uh, direct parallels in neo-noirs like Blade Runner or uh, Body Heat or things like that where women wind up with these costumes. And I feel like the, you know, in the 80s, like you were talking about, I mean, the the suit with the big shoulders, that that was a signifier of ambition or various things in movies like Working Girl back then. And Well, I mean, it's like, you know, when women were really trying to Anytime women are trying to seem equal to men, that's when these suits come into, um, especially in career wear. Like you're saying, the 80s, um, not only were the 80s about excess, but it's like women were really coming into their own in the workplace. And so, yeah, there were just suits galore and the shoulder pads. The 80s loved the 30s and the 40s. So. <laughs> You know, what's old is new again. So is that Noir's legacy in in costuming today then? Well, I think there's there's two things. One, like you just pointed out, that the costume, it's a touch point for modern costume designers anytime they want to, you know, tap into a 40s feel in their films or if it's a, you know, um, a neo-noir, like you're saying, Blade Runner or L.A. Confidential, uh, Hollywood Land. It's like they're going to look back at these movies and they're going to pull, you know, their inspiration for costumes from these noir. But also, you know, outside, you know, costumes, just the the just the ongoing of fashion pulling inspiration from these films and it's incredible because I know that a ton of people have never seen these movies, but they know these costumes. They know the look of, of Rita Hayworth and Gilda, even if they haven't seen it. They know the look of Ava Gardner and the Killers, even though they haven't seen it. I, I bet a bunch of people have never seen a Veronica Lake movie, but they know her hair. <laughs> so it's just, I mean, that's, that's the straight. And like, you know, when I, I talk to people like at Turner Classic Movies, I'm just saying, you know, if you want to prove the the legacy and the ongoing influence of, of film, it's like, just look at fashion. It's like they can't help themselves. Like it just, it just keeps coming back. Every season has something drawing from classic film and it's just remarkable how many film noir, which were not big budget productions, are still so prominent um, as far as inspiration for design. When they had the earthquake in San Francisco back in 1906, they said that old mother nature was up to her old tricks. That's the story that went around, but here's the real down. Put the blame on Maine, boy. Put the blame on Maine. One night she started to. That, of course, is Rita Hayworth wearing an aircraft fuselage in Gilda.
Kimberly Truller's film noir style, The Killer 1940s, is out now from Goodnight Books. There will be a link in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Jacqueline Braitman and Kimberly Truller, and to Courtney McCreary at University Press of Mississippi and Sarah Miniacci at Smith Publicity. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Remember to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice and leave us a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks.